Today we're looking at a book of the Bible that doesn't even reference God. That's right, I said that correctly. There's this one book of the Bible where God's name is not even mentioned. And so it invites us to ask the question, does God ever feel hidden to you? Have you ever experienced that before where it just feels like God is nowhere to be found in a world full of injustice? Well, once again, as we look at this book of the Bible and this story, this this beautiful, powerful story here, we're not looking at this nice, cute, Disney-type story, but rather this is a gritty, true story of a trafficked slave girl who, by God's invisible plan, she's saved, she's protected, And all of God's people are protected through her and through her stand for justice. This story will blow your mind and it's going to increase your view of God's providence. Well, maybe you've guessed already, but today we're looking at the book of Esther. Welcome back to our journey through Scripture Today we're in the book of Esther. We take one book of the Bible each week, and I like to give a narrative summary, and then I also like to give a sampler passage that's very relevant to us in our day. So why don't we get started here with our narrative summary. Well, the story is setting here. The story is set approximately 100 years after the Babylonian exile of the Israelites, Some Jews did not return back to Jerusalem. I mean, sometimes you may have heard this story about the Jews, uh, God's people, they are taken off into captivity, and then you may have heard this story that they all return back. Well, that's not what happens. That's not how the Bible records what happens. Last couple of weeks, we looked at Ezra and Nehemiah and how not all but some of those Israelites returned home. Now, the book of Esther is about a Jewish community living in Susa. Susa is the capital city of the Persian Empire. And there are four main characters. The two humble Jews and two evil villains. Well, first of all, the two humble Jews. Mordecai. Mordecai is the name of a Jewish man living in Susa, this capital city of the Persian Empire, who who had been carried away into Babylon, into that captivity, among the other captives that were carried away by King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Mordecai was raising a, a girl, a woman named Esther. He was raising her because he was raising her as his own daughter. He had adopted her when Esther's father and mother had died. So Esther is this young Jewish girl who uh, is, she, she's trafficked. She, she's trafficked into the harem of King Xerxes. Now, just in my conversation earlier this week with, with my wife Caroline about this story of Esther, Caroline reminded me that, that this, th- th- this is a, This is of no choice to Esther. Esther being trafficked, Esther being raped, and and Esther being 
gathered to, to be brought in to join the other sex slaves. Uh, this is of no choice to Esther. I mean, imagine what Esther's dreams as a little girl may have been. You know, that whenever she's going to grow up, what, what, what would she do? Who would she be? This was not part of her dreams or her imagination at all. Esther, however, Esther, however, is the protagonist in this story who is elevated to the position of queen and who uses her position to save her people by standing up for justice. The two prideful villains, two evil prideful villains, one is Xerxes, king of Persia, powerfully, powerfully ruling over the largest empire in history at that time. The the, the Bible says he was ruling from India to Ethiopia. That's That's a vast kingdom. And what we need to know about King Xerxes is he was arrogant, uh, he, he was uh, basically a drunk, and he's trafficking women. He's bringing and gathering women into his harem. Now, the other evil character, uh, the other villain is Haman. Haman is undoubtedly the antagonist here in this story. He's this evil villain who uses his wealth, he uses his power, even uses his race, to plan evil against God's people. He is like an architect of genocide. He sets out to kill Jews, all the Jews, and he bribes the king with 10,000 talents of silver to send out a decree that the Persian people would kill all Jews on a specific day and that no one would even be punished for it. So let me ask a theological question right here from the very beginning as we're getting into the book of Esther. Why is God never mentioned in the book of Esther? How does the book of Esther fit into the redemptive narrative? I mean, for weeks now, as we've been looking at all these books of the Bible, uh, we see God. He's there. He's there. He's there. There's another example of God is faithful. God is showing up. God is going to be true to his promises. There he is. There he is. And yet in this book, we don't see him. He's not here. Why is that? I just want to present to you today that God being hidden in the book of Esther is no accident. This is something very, very intentional. God is being hidden on purpose. Esther's name in Hebrew means, I will hide or conceal. Back in Deuteronomy, earlier book in the Pentateuch in the Old Testament, chapter 31, verses 16 and 17, the exile is foretold to Moses before Moses dies. And God says that in the exile, I will hide from them. Hmm. This is no accident that God is hidden here in this book called Esther. God is being hidden on purpose. Esther is the fulfillment of Deuteronomy chapter 31. The absence of God in Esther is why Esther is in the Bible. It's about those moments in history where you ask, where is God? Is God present? 
It's about those moments when it seems like God is absent. And you, and you ask, how will the people of God when, how, how will the people of God live when it seems like God isn't near? And that's the question for you and for me today. How will you live when it seems like God isn't near? And it's in those moments, it's in those very moments when it seems like God is absent, that God is actively working, and that God will never, ever, 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 ever stop working until his work is complete. God raises up this woman, Esther, to protect and preserve his story. And the power of the message of of Esther is God isn't absent even in the moments when he seems absent. He's there. He's there in this brilliant technique by this anonymous author so that we'll read the story of this, this, uh, this book of Esther and, and we'll look for God behind the scenes. And there's signs of it everywhere. There's our narrative summary. I invite you to go back and read the book of Esther. And by the way, if you're just now joining us in this journey through Scripture, of course, we invite you to go back all the way to the beginning. But if not, uh, jump right in with us right here, right now. And so let me give us a sampler passage today. We're looking at Esther chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. And as we look at this, I'm going to give you a moment to find it there. There's a QR code where you can find this amazing passage. And as we look at this passage, let me go ahead and tell you the three points that I'm going to be making from this sample passage. Number one is God seems hidden in a world of injustice. Don't you find that true? And the second one is God gives wisdom as we live in a world of injustice. And the last point is God shows us his reversal plan. All right, let me read the passage. I invite you to read along with me. Mordecai sent this reply to Esther. Don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place. But you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go and gather together all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. And then, though it is against the law, I will go in to see the king. If I must die, I must die. Wow. As I said before, this is not some nice, cute Disney little story. This is a gritty, robust story. And so why don't we jump right into this story. The first thing here is that God seems hidden in a world of injustice. I mean, just pause for just a moment. I'm I'm inviting you to think and reflect and feel 
as you and I come into this time, this, this, this time of studying the Bible here together, and, and, and if, we, if we're honest with ourselves, we ask that same question, don't we? Is God present? Is God even here? God, do you even care? Where are you? And if we're honest, we also feel the pain every day, every single day when we see others experiencing the pain of systemic injustice. We, we experience pain when, when, when we watch the news, when we watch the, the local news and the global news because of the systemic injustice. And, and it just feels like God is hidden. As Dr. King taught us, injustice anywhere is injustice everywhere. Esther chapter 4, verse 13 that we just read, Mordecai sent this reply to Esther, don't think for a moment that because you're in the palace, you will escape when all other Jews are killed. This is a wake-up call. This is a wake-up call. There is systemic injustice then, both the story that we're looking at and even stories that came before this story, and there's systemic injustice now, in our day and age. And it's a wake-up call. I mean, one of the big lessons throughout the entire Bible is that, is that I mean, story after story after story is that, is that we have a God who hates injustice, Now, what kind, of, what kind of injustice specifically, though, are we talking about in this story? I mean, we could give an entire talk on how God hates injustice and the different types of injustice. But, but what type of injustice do we see specifically in this story of Esther? Well, there's trafficking, human trafficking and, and rape, treating women as objects. That's an injustice. Chapter 1, I invite you to go back and read chapter 1, but I'll give you a snippet from chapter 1. The the book of Esther opens up with this scene of a party. And you think, well, what's wrong with a party? Well, here's, here's what's systemically unjust about this party that's being thrown here in chapter 1. King Xerxes shows the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days. It's basically... Him showing off how great he is, how rich he is. And you want to know how long that this party lasts? Six months. Chapter 1 of Esther says that this party lasts for 180 days. King Xerxes commanded his men, also here in chapter 1, he commands his men to bring Queen Vashti, that was the queen at the time, Queen Vashti before him, in order to show the peoples her beauty. Because Queen Vashti refused to his command and did not perform for King Xerxes, the king then planned to give her position to someone better than her. He's done with her. She's she's out. She's she's out. Chapter 2 goes on. It, it, It was commanded commanded, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. 
King Xerxes had officers in all the provinces of his kingdom. I'm just reading from the Bible here, chapter 2 of Esther. Uh, all of, of the, in all the provinces of his kingdom, gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the capital. Are you listening to this? Let the young women who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. The Esther was taken, Scripture says here, she was taken into the king's palace and put into custody. She was advanced to the highest part of the harem. Now what other kind of injustice, if that's not enough, if that doesn't just make you weep or get incredibly angry, or again, ask this question, God seems hidden in a world of injustice, doesn't he? But what other kind of injustice are we talking about here from this passage? If that wasn't enough, racial pride, national pride that leads to genocide. Let me give a quote by C.S. Lewis in the book called Mere Christianity. He has a famous chapter in there on pride. And he says, Pride is ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on the self. And when C.S. Lewis says that pride is ruthless, there is a cruelty to pride where it truly takes advantage of others and creates a system so that it only benefits the self, not looking out for anyone else. When he says that pride is sleepless, it's this endless ego calculation. Yeah, literally, Someone shows up to a party and they start sizing everybody else up. It's all about their ego. They're calculating their ego, wanting to have more than others around them. C.S. Lewis says that pride is unsmiling. What does he mean by this? It means that, that this type of person's truly not happy. They, they don't have any joy, true joy. They may be smiling on the outside, but deep in their soul there's just no smile. Racial pride is bitterness. This is what King Xerxes and the other evil villain Haman, this is what they have. There's this racial pride and bitterness and anger towards other people groups. And in this particular context, the other people group are the Jews. And notice that you can't stay you, you can't stay angry at someone. We've all been angry at someone. Now, you can't stay angry at someone unless you feel superior to them. Right? You feel bitter. Sometimes we feel bitter towards someone because we say something like, oh, I would never do what that person did. Or I feel like I am or I feel like my people group is actually worth more than that person or their people group. People this week, people this week locally and globally were gunned down because of pride. Because of pride. People were killed this very week locally and globally in our world because of pride. Chapter 3 of Esther, Haman must have been 
obnoxiously prideful because people were commanded to bow down to Haman. When they saw him, they were commanded they had to bow down to him. And Mordecai, Mordecai, this humble Jewish man, would not bow down to him. And Haman hated him for it. And Haman tells the king that there's this group of people, there's this group of people who won't obey the king's laws. And he, Haman also tells the king, if you allow me to slaughter them and take their money, lots of that money is going to come into the king's treasury. Would you let me do that for you, king? A king doesn't even find out who this group of people are. Haman hatches this plan of genocide as he looked for a way to destroy not just Mordecai, but all of the Jews. So in chapter 5, he ends up boasting to his wife, Haman. Haman boasts to his wife and his friends about his riches and about the number of his sons that he had and how the king had honored him above all the other servants of the kings. And then in chapter 5, it says this of Haman. Yet all of this is worth nothing to me, Haman said, as long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Here's why, even though he has all of that, it means nothing to him. And it's back to our C.S. Lewis quote. Is that pride is unsmiling. It's not truly happy. There's no joy. There's no true fulfillment. Let me keep quoting from C.S. Lewis again on that famous chapter on pride. He says, Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, but only gets pleasure in having more than the next person. You may think you're proud of being successful or intelligent or good-looking, but you're not. Because when you're surrounded by people with as much or more success or intelligence, or good looks, you lose pleasure in them. Lust may actually drive you to sleep with the beautiful woman because you want her. Pride, however, drives you to sleep with the beautiful woman just to prove to everyone, including yourself, that you can do it, and that you can do it over all others. A proud man gets no real pleasure from the woman. It's all about him. So, out of pride, the king's edict, that is, an edict to kill all Jews, it it actually is sent out. It goes out to all the people. And when Mordecai heard of it, he he tore his clothes. Mordecai's in anguish. He's in grief. He's in lament. He's in anger. And Mordecai went to Esther. He goes to Esther, and they come up with this plan. And of course, they're being led by God right when it seems like God is hidden. Esther will go uninvited. This is the plan. Esther will go uninvited into the king's court. And unless the king holds up the golden scepter, this this sort of just barging right into the king's court is punishable by death. That gets us right into our second point here, that God gives wisdom as we live in a world of injustice. Now, as we said before, some Jews had returned home to Jerusalem from the exile in Babylon, some of them. 
Scholars believe approximately 250,000 of them out of 6.5 million of them. What does that tell us? All the other Jews stayed in Persia where they were living. That's a lot of Jews. And those Jews living there in Persia, they were thinking. They, they, they knew the story of Abraham. They, they knew that God had told Abraham that through Abraham, all the nations would be blessed. So what that means for them is that now they are outside of Israel. Uh, they, 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 they are in, they're in Persia. And yet they knew they remembered that through us, we will bless the nations here, here in Persia, here in Persia. So the application question as you read Esther is, how do you live in Persia? How do you live in the place where God has called you to live? And for you modern day listener right now, how do you live in San Francisco? I mean, the point is not just to gather all of God's people and go live all in the same place. Oh, let's all go to Jerusalem. Let's all live there. Now, the story is about what it means to live in, in Persia and apply God's wisdom there and see God's kingdom built there and participate with God as God begins to bring in other nationalities into the story and into the family of God. When we think about wisdom, we think about James, book of the Bible in the New Testament, James chapter 1, verse 5, it says, if you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. Do you ask God for his wisdom in the circumstances that you find yourself in? And that's why in our sampler passage today, I chose this one because Mordecai is encouraging Esther to reflect and, and, and to think. Look, look at Esther chapter 4, verse 14 with me. Mordecai says, If you keep quiet at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Who knows? If perhaps you were made queen for just such a time as this. See, God isn't mentioned in this book of Esther. But Mordecai is expressing his certainty that God has a plan. Hey, hey Esther, you, you may choose to stay quiet, but even, even if you do, even if you do, there's going to be deliverance and relief for the Jews, and it's going to arise from some other place. Mordecai's faith, he, 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 know, he knows that God has a plan, some plan. But what if? What if Esther did say something to the king? I try to change the plan of Haman to exterminate the Jews. What if? I mean, what would the king say? What would the king do? Esther chapter 4, verse 16, Esther says, Go and gather all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. And then 
Though it is against the law, I will go in and see the king. If I must die, I must die. Once again, God is not mentioned in the book of Esther, but Esther, just like Mordecai, Esther is expressing faith in God by asking God's people to go and fast for her and even saying that she too would also fast. So Esther decides to go to the king. And she says, if I perish, I perish. Chapter 8 of the book of Esther records that she speaks to the king and she begged him to put an end to this evil plan of Haman. Esther says in chapter 8, verse 6, For how can I endure to see my people and my family slaughtered and destroyed? Remaining silent for Esther was, was, was not an option. That's not God's wisdom that was coming to her, that was being given to her. If Esther was silent, it would have been the same as condoning Haman's evil plan. Think of Psalm 139, verse 5 and 6. I don't know that uh, Esther knew this part of Scripture. There's a chance that she did know this as a Jew. But Psalm 139, verse 5 and 6, speaking of God and God's presence. See, God is not uh, absent. He's not truly hidden. It, it seems as though He is. But Psalm 139, five, verse 5 and 6 says, God, you go before me. God, you follow me. God, you place a, your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too great for me to understand. This is the, the powerfully beautiful presence of God's wisdom coming to you. If you're a follower of, of Jesus, if you're in God's family as, as a Christian, the Holy Spirit, that is God's very presence with you, the Holy Spirit will put wisdom in you and, and at times it even feels like the Holy Spirit taps you on the shoulder and says, for such a time as this. So see, our prayer, your prayer, my prayer each day as we are in an, a, a world full of injustice and it seems like God has hidden our prayers to say, God, you are present even when it feels like and even when it looks like you're not present. May your Spirit give me wisdom today, to live here and make decisions in the complex and complicated situations I find myself in today. And that leads us here to our, our, our last point here, that God shows his reversal plan against the injustice. And what do I mean by his reversal plan? Well, remember back earlier in the Old Testament, Abraham and Sarah were childless. God had promised that they would indeed have a, uh, a child, and it would be through that child and through that seed that the promised Messiah would come. So you remember that story, right? But yet they were childless. Then God reverses the plan. <laughs> Abraham becomes the father of many nations. What a reversal! 
Joseph, you'll remember, is sold into slavery. Another story there in the Old Testament. Then Joseph is appointed head over all of Egypt. What a reversal. Jesus Christ, who is crucified, who dies, who is buried, then he rises from the dead. An unimaginable reversal that God had planned. And as we anticipate the return of Christ to this earth, and and that's how the story ends. The story, by the way, if no one's told you, or if you haven't read your Bible recently, the story does not end in Armageddon. Uh, The story ends with Christ returning to this earth, then totally, totally reverses the curse. What an amazing, beautiful reversal. And it reminds us of Isaiah the prophet, chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, that says, speaking for God, my thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord, and my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. See, God shows his reversal plan. He he has this beautiful reversal plan. Now back to our story. God knows how to do a reversal of fortunes and a reversal of the future. The book of Esther is all about God's reversal plan. Check out this reversal. The king, that night, he can't sleep. He has insomnia. And so a book, a book is read to him. They read to him some of the chronicles and he he remembers that Mordecai had saved his life and Mordecai was never rewarded. So the king talks to Haman and he asks Haman, what should we do for a man that the king wants to honor? And you can imagine what Haman thought. Haman thought that the king was talking about Haman. Haman and all of his pride. Everything's about the self. It's about me. So desperately needing respect and thinking that the king means him, Haman says, we should have a royal procession with with robes and horses, etc., etc. And the king says, ah, yes, let's do that for Mordecai. Shocker. What a reversal of fortunes. Haman was expecting for for all of those blessings to to come his way and instead they they go towards Mordecai. That's, That's the person that Haman hated. Another reversal. Esther finally reveals to the king and to Haman that she is one of the people. She is one of the people that that the king and Haman's edict meant to murder. She reveals this to them, that she's a Jew. And the king is devastated whenever whenever he hears this from Esther. And he asks, who came up with this plan? Who did this? And Esther said, a foe and an enemy, the evil Haman. Here's another reversal. 
Esther convinced the king to then send out a second edict for the Jewish people to be able to defend themselves when the time came for them to be slaughtered. What a reversal. Haman was planning to to hang Mordecai, and instead, Haman is hanged. Mordecai was saved, and the lives of the Jews were saved because Esther spoke up for justice. And there's this gospel reversal that should be that, that you should be seeing right now as we talk about this. You should be imagining and thinking about Jesus Christ right now and this reversal. That, that Jesus reverses places with us. Jesus, unlike Esther, who said, if I perish, I perish, Jesus said, I will perish. I will perish so that all who believe in me won't have to perish. I choose to lay my life down with joy, Jesus says. Nobody's going to take my life from me. I'm going to lay it down for you. See, God came all the way down from heaven to reverse places with us. That is, the sinless one, Jesus, would live a life in place of sinners. And he would be crucified for us. And then all of the righteousness that Christ accrued because of his perfect life, that is now credited to us so that we are called righteous. We are called daughters and sons of God. So if you were to summarize the gospel, if you were ever to try to summarize the gospel, or if you wanted to tell a non-Christian friend, answering them, what is the Bible all about? Or what is the gospel? What is this good news all about? You could say, it's God's great reversal plan. And the verse you would use is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that God can declare us as righteous. Here's another reversal in our story today. See, at the beginning of Esther, you remember there's this party. There's this big party that, that, that we talked about. There's a party there, a 180-day 180, 180 party where young, beautiful virgins are being gathered and brought into the king's harem. Well, the book of Esther also ends with a party. What a reversal, though. A much, much different and better party. And the party that's described for us is, is, is a party in which other nationalities become Jewish. That's right. They, they, I mean, let me just ask you this question. Have you ever, ever been curious about how the other nationalities begin to come into this family of God called Israel? I've been so curious about that. You probably have too, especially when God promised to Abraham that it's going to be through you that all the nations will come in. All the nations will be blessed. Well, Israel in the Old Testament, and we've covered this over the last several weeks, Israel in the Old Testament, in that part of the narrative, the redemptive narrative, it was a nation state, but that was temporary. 
God's plan all along was to gather all the nations and even to send us as God's representatives to other nations and to live there. Just like we see those Israelites doing there in Persia, those who didn't come back to Jerusalem. Is that God would gather all nations to be a part of His family. And so all followers of Christ are called Israel in the Bible. That we've been adopted, we've been grafted in to his family. It's beginning to happen right here in the book of Esther. If you've ever been curious, when do we begin to see other nationalities come into this family of God? It's right here in the book of Esther. Let me read it for you. Esther chapter 8, verses 15 through 17. says that the city of Susa held a joyous celebration for the Jews. It was a time of happiness and joy gladness and honor in every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating and many people of other nationalities became Jews did you catch that you need to catch this you you, you need to see this that there's willing Willingly, people are willingly wanting to come into this family of God. It's similar to your non-Christian friends. That they want to see God do for them what they're seeing God do for you. In conclusion, the absence of God in Esther only seems that way. It invites us to ask, does Does God ever feel hidden to you? And of course you would answer yes. The other question is, what do we do? And how do we live when God seems hidden in a world of injustice? As a preacher, I I can't say, hey, come to God. There'll there'll be no bad days. Hey, come to God. There'll, There'll be no bad employers. Come to God and there'll be no injustice. Those are all lies. I can't say any of those things. But what I can say is this, that whatever is coming against you right now will not have the last word. Whatever's coming against you, whatever injustice you're living in or around, God has a reversal plan. And even though God may feel hidden from you right now, God is very, very much present So trust this God. Trust this very God because he's doing something greater, greater than you can even see. Let's pray right now. Dear Lord, thank you for being ever present. You are all around us and in us. Help us live with confidence knowing that you are here even though we can't see you. Give us wisdom to speak up when you call us to. Give us faith to believe in you and your reversal plan. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray it. Amen.